we're going to go ahead and get started. It's about 3 o'clock, and thank you for coming out today. We've got quite a program that's kind of in tune with the Wayman exhibit. Um, we've got two authors um, reading from their work, and Charlene Fix is also going to read a uh, James Gerber story. I'll let the authors introduce their material. that on? No? Okay. Hello? Okay. I'm going to leave the mic on because I've sat in the back during this and sometimes it's, you're, there's a battle for your ears. So, okay. I'm going to start with a uh, short story by James Thurber who wrote wonderfully about dogs, um, a little madly and a little <laughs> eccentrically. Everyone in these stories is an eccentric, including the dogs. Um, and this is a short story called The Dog That Bit People. As probably most of you know, Thurber grew up in Columbus, and it's always fun to hear the Columbus references in the story. Probably no one, no one man should have as many dogs in his life as I have had, but there was more pleasure than distress in them for me, except in the case of an Airedale named Muggs. He gave me more trouble than any of the 54 or 5 put together, although my moment of keenest embarrassment was the time a Scotch terrier named Jeannie, who had just had six puppies in the clothes closet of a fourth floor apartment in New York, had the unexpected seventh and last at the corner of 11th Street and 5th Avenue during a walk she had insisted on taking. Then, too, there was a prize-winning French poodle, a great big black poodle, none of your little untroublesome white miniatures, who got sick riding in the rumble seat of a car with me on her way to the Greenwich Dog Show. She had a red rubber bib tucked around her throat, and since the rainstorm came up when we were halfway through the Bronx, I had to hold over her a small green umbrella, really more of a parasol. The rain beat down fearfully, and suddenly the driver of the car drove into a big garage filled with mechanics. It happened so quickly that I forgot to put the umbrella down, and I will always remember, with sickening distress, the look of incredulity mixed with hatred that came over the face of the particular hardened garage man that came over to see what we wanted when he took a look at me and the poodle. All garage men and people of that intolerant stripe hate poodles with their curious haircut, especially the pom-poms that you got to leave on their hips if you expect the dogs to win a prize. But the Airedale, as I have said, was the worst of all my dogs. He really wasn't my dog, as a matter of fact. I came home from a vacation one summer to find that my brother, Roy, had brought him, bought him while I was away. A big, burly, choleric dog, he always acted as if he thought I wasn't one of the family. There was a slight advantage in being one of the family, for he didn't bite the family as often as he bit strangers. Still, in the years that we had him, he bit everybody but mother, and he made a pass at her once but missed. That was during the month when we suddenly had mice, and Muggs refused to do anything about them. Nobody ever had mice exactly like the mice we had that month. They acted like pet mice, almost like mice somebody had trained. They were so friendly that one night when mother entertained at dinner the Freeraliras, a club she and my father had belonged to for 20 years, she put down a lot of little dishes with food in them on the pantry floor 
so that the mice would be satisfied with that and wouldn't come into the dining room. Muggs stayed out in the pantry with the mice, lying on the floor, growling to himself, not at the mice, but about all the people in the next room that he would have liked to get at. Mother slipped out into the pantry once to see how everything was going. Everything was going fine. It made her so mad to see Muggs lying there, oblivious of the mice. They came running up to her that she slapped him and he slashed at her, but didn't make it. He was sorry immediately, Mother said. He was always sorry, she said, after he bit someone. But we could not understand how she figured this out. He didn't act sorry. Mother used to send a box of candy every Christmas to the people the Airedale bit. The list finally contained 40 or more names. Nobody could understand why we didn't get rid of the dog. I didn't understand it very well myself, but we didn't get rid of him. I think that one or two people tried to poison Muggs. He acted poisoned once in a while. And old Major Moberly fired at him once with his service revolver near the Seneca Hotel in East Broad Street. But Muggs lived to be almost 11 years old, and even when he could hardly get around, he bit a congressman who had called to see my father on business. My mother had never liked the congressman. She said the signs of his horoscope showed he couldn't be trusted. He was Saturn with the moon in Virgo. But she sent him a box of candy that Christmas. He sent it right back, probably because he suspected it was trick candy. Mother persuaded herself it was all for the best that the dog had bitten him, even though father lost an important business association because of it. I wouldn't be associated with such a man, Mother said. Mugs could read him like a book. We used to take turns feeding Mugs to be on his good side, but that didn't always work. He was never in a good humor, even after a meal. Nobody knew exactly what was the matter with him, but whatever it was, it made him irascible, especially in the mornings. Roy never felt very well in the morning either, especially before breakfast. And once when he came downstairs and found that Muggs had moodily chewed up the morning paper, he hit him in the face with a grapefruit and then jumped up on the dining room table, scattering dishes and silverware and spilling the coffee. Muggs's first free leap carried him all the way across the table and into a brass fire screen in front of the gas grate, but he was back on his feet in a moment, and in the end he got Roy and gave him a pretty vicious bite in the leg. Then he was all over it. He never bit anyone more than once at a time. <laughs> Mother always mentioned that as an argument in his favor, Mother always mentioned that as an argument in his favor. She said he had a quick temper, but he didn't hold a grudge. She was forever defending him. I think she liked him because he wasn't well. He's not well. He's not strong, she would say pityingly, but that was inaccurate. He may not have been well, but he was terribly strong. This, of course, is accompanied by Thurber drawings of mugs. One time my mother went to the Chittenden Hotel to call on a woman mental healer who was lecturing in Columbus on the subject of harmonious vibrations. She wanted to find out if it was possible to get harmonious vibrations into a dog. He's a tan, large tan-colored Airedale, Mother explained. The woman said that she had never treated a dog, but she advised my mother to hold the thought that he did not bite and would not bite. Mother was holding the thought the very next morning when Nugs got the Iceman, but she blamed that slip-up on the Iceman. If you didn't think he would bite you, he wouldn't, Mother told him. He stomped out of the house in a terrible jangle of vibrations. 
One morning, when Muggs bit me slightly, more or less in passing, I reached down and grabbed his short, stumpy tail and hoisted him into the air. It was a foolhardy thing to do, and the last time I saw Mother about six months ago, she said she didn't know what possessed me. I didn't either, except that I was pretty mad. As long as I held the dog off the floor by his tail, he couldn't get at me, but he twisted and jerked so, snarling all the time that I realized I couldn't hold him that way very long. I carried him to the kitchen and flung him onto the floor and shut the door on him just as he crashed against it, but I forgot about the back stairs. Muggs went up the back stairs and down the front stairs and had me cornered in the living room. I managed to get up on the mantelpiece above the fireplace, but it gave way and came down with a tremendous crash, throwing a large marble clock, several vases, and myself heavily to the floor. Muggs was so alarmed by the racket that when I picked myself up, he had disappeared. We couldn't find him anywhere, although we whistled and shouted until old Mrs. Detweiler called after dinner that night. Muggs had bitten her once in the leg, and she came into the living room only after we assured her that Muggs had run away. She had just seated herself when, with a great growling and scratching of claws, Muggs emerged from under a Davenport where he had been quietly hiding all the time and bit her again. Mother examined the bite and put arnica on it and told Mrs. Detweiler that it was only a bruise. He just bumped you, she said. But Mrs. Detweiler left the house in a nasty state of mind. Lots of people reported our Airedale to the police, but my father held a municipal office at the time and was on friendly terms with the police. Even so, the cops had been out a couple of times. Once when Muggs bit Mrs. Rufus Sturtebont, and again when he bit Lieutenant Governor Malloy, but Mother told them that it hadn't been Muggs's fault, but the fault of the people who were bitten. When he starts for them, they scream, she explained, and that excites him. The cops suggested that it might be a good idea to tie the dog up, but Mother said that it mortified him to be tied up and that he wouldn't eat when he was tied up. Muggs at his meals was an unusual sight. Because of the fact that if you reached toward the floor, he would bite you, We usually put his food plate on top of an old kitchen table with a bench alongside the table. Muggs would stand on the bench and eat. I remember my mother's Uncle Horatio, who boasted that he was the third man up Missionary Ridge and was sputteringly indignant when he found out that we fed the dog on a table because we were afraid to put his plate on the floor. He said he wasn't afraid of any dog that ever lived and that he would put the dog's plate on the floor if we would give it to him. Roy said that if Uncle Horatio had fed mugs on the ground just before the battle, he would have been the first man up Missionary Ridge. Uncle Horatio was furious. Bring him in, bring him in now, he shouted. I'll feed the blank on the floor. Roy was all for giving him a chance, but my father wouldn't hear of it. He said that mugs had already been fed. I'll feed him again, bawled Uncle Horatio. We had quite a time quieting him. In his last year, Muggs used to spend practically all of his time outdoors. He didn't like, it, like to stay in the house for some reason or other. People perhaps had held too many unpleasant memories for him. Anyway, it was hard to get him to come in, and as a result, the garbage man, the ice man, and the laundry man wouldn't come near the house. We had to haul the garbage down to the corner, take the laundry out and bring it back, and meet the ice man a block from home. 
After this had gone on for some time, we hit on an ingenious arrangement for getting the dog in the house so that he, we could lock him up while the gas meter was red and so on. Muggs was afraid of only one thing, an electrical storm. Thunder and lightning frightened him out of his senses. I think he thought the storm had broken the day the mantelpiece fell. He would rush into the house and hide under a bed or in a clothes closet. So we fixed up a thunder machine out of a long, narrow piece of sheet iron with a wooden handle on one end. Mother would shake this vigorously when she wanted to get mugs into the house. It made an excellent imitation of thunder, but I suppose it was the most roundabout system for running a household that was ever devised. It took a lot out of mother. A few months before Muggs died, he got to seeing things. He would rise slowly from the floor, growling low, and stalk stiff-legged and menacing toward nothing at all. Sometimes the thing would be just a little to the right or left of a visitor. Once a fuller brush salesman got hysterics. Mug came wandering into the room like Hamlet following his father's ghost. His eyes were fixed on a spot just to the left of the fuller brush man, who stood it until Muggs was about three slow, creeping paces from him. Then he shouted. Muggs wavered on past him into the hallway, grumbling to himself, but the fuller man went on shouting. I think Mother had to throw a pan of cold water on him before he stopped. That was the way she used to stop us boys when we got into fights. Mug died quite suddenly one night. Mother wanted to bury him in the family lot under a marble stone with some such inscription as flights of angels sing thee to thy rest, but we persuaded her it was against the law. In the end, we just put up a smooth board above his grave along a lonely road. On the board, I wrote with an indelible pencil, Cave Canem. Mother was quite pleased with the simple classic dignity of the old Latin epigraph. Thurber thanks you. <laughs> and in the spirit of word and image, um, I wanted to share some poems from um, Flowering Bruno, a dography that was published about a year ago. And it has poems by me and drawings by a colleague of mine, philosophy professor Susan Josephson at the Columbus College of Art and Design. And we had a lot of fun making the book. Um, I told her I had a zillion poems about my dog, and she said, oh, let me draw, and that's how it got started, and she put, brought order to the chaos, she ordered the poems into seasons, and Bruno died while we were finishing the four seasons and putting it together, and I kept writing, and um, Susan had to keep drawing because I kept writing, <laughs> so we ended up with the fifth season, the last season, okay, and I'm just going to read you a couple poems from each season. I'll, I'd hold the pictures up, but it's a pretty small format. I don't think you can see them real well. Um, the Big Mysterious Dog. I ask him if he's happy, and he smiles, or else it is the heat that curls his mouth and makes his tongue wall. The Big Mysterious Dog, appropriated to our house, who has, these ten years, learned to sprawl and pity us. Lately, he's been salading on foxtail grass and slurping legs emerging from the shorts of passers-by. He trances us until we garnish his food with parmesan or chopped egg or give him ours. Who taught him chivalry? He waits for us before descending stairs and bids us go ahead of him while he leans on the door. The door, the door. He takes us through the door. 
This is, these are from Summer, the first couple. Where would we be without post-its? <laughs> okay. Um, this not, Bruno is not in every poem in the book, and the poems are not necessarily about Bruno, but he just... When you have a dog, you go for walks often, and it's, they're slow walks because they have to smell everything and mark everything. So it's a very meditative kind of thing. So anyway, there are, this is a different dog. This is a childhood memory dog, the side yard. When a strange dog wandered into the side yard, the child who knew nothing of the good or evil of dogs hid between the storm and screen doors, pressing herself flat. But the screen still wouldn't close, nor the storm door open to the house, and the dog, loping from behind the garage and across the wide driveway, his tail propelling his rear, nosed his way into the crevice between the doors to sniff and lick the child, who in terror stretched tall and closed her eyes. The side yard faced a wall of the neighbor's house, but from a second-story window on the other side, an old woman without teeth was unfurling to the ground her wet white hair. Through the back door, the oldest son was leaving for the factory, his lunchbox silver in the morning light. On the front lawn, the youngest son, martyred to mild idiocy by a bat to his skull while trying to stop a sandlot fight, was moaning for his lost life. And in the, her room, the house-coated daughter, who at night unpinned her gray and thinning braids to love a married man, lined up her porcelain saints and prayed. In the side yard behind and taller than the flimsy pink roses that opened so wide they fell apart, trumpet-shaped flowers bloomed, silent as God, bearing seeds like black coins sized for the fingers of dolls. These lured the child from her press between the doors and bought salvation from fear of the world bearing down like a dog's nose, fear of leaving the yard and being ravished by her neighbor's hearts. And the moral of that is don't live next door to a, <laughs> to a writer when she's growing up. Um, this is an, uh, kind of an art poem. Art, art often reappears in reality. It's, a, it's entitled Bonard because bon, in a lot of Bonard paintings there's a little dachshund that you don't necessarily notice unless you're looking for him. Um, and then you see him. Bonard. A solitary woman walks the alley with her little rusty dachshund that looks as if he were lifted out of a Bonard. The red dog you sometimes see in a corner or obviously well-loved at the table, on a chair, though she herself is nothing like the wife Bonard painted perennially young, but is a grown and weary version of a ricketts child. Bruno barks at them, so I too bend, for I know this woman's suffering in the way a stranger at a table eyes a platter that is much too hot to touch. I hold Bruno's face and talk to his pointed ears ticking around like radar, fix his mischievous darting eye with mine, and whisper to the wedge of his nose and his bold whiskers just how sleek and lovely is the dachshund dog, how brush, oils, light, and the right, by which I mean inclusive temperament, showed me forever the velvet of the dachshund's coat, 
which cannot be divided from the walking woman's heart and accomplish this by mixing ear, nose, paw, or slope of furred and ruddy head with windows, flowers, tile, a reclining, living, dying bather, fruit. Okay, we're still in summer for some reason. <laughs> um, and this is, uh, hmm, do I want to read this? All right. This is a poem called Salesman. He comes out at twilight when he can hardly be seen. At the corner where the roads fork, he hawks invisibility and a spell to make blinds roll up handlessly. He sells an old woman, never mind that she's deceased, who will compose sonatas only you can hear, inspired by your private dreams. From the blue house, he sells a wide veranda that forces a dance from your feet. From the brown, he sells a way by which a solitary man can cleave himself in two, becoming his own brother. And from the brick house, trimmed in green, the salesman offers tears and feng shui. Devotion is for sale ten houses up, but at a steep price. It's hard to find a place for but he'll sell you childhood hanging upside down from limbs and kickballs suspended in trees. He tiptoes across the street to rap for a special customer, an irrigated heart. The salesman sells a fear of what is hiding in the bushes so intense you'll be compelled to hack all lower branches off. Meanwhile, he warns you to inspect the faith he has for sale. It brooks no variation. Once a year, he'll sell you planets, but only when they line up over the widower's chimney, nice and neat. The salesman's ancient dog is calling you with his hoarse bark. The salesman's talkative child is offering to witness any grief for a lark. The salesman exhorts from you alms to keep the swollen moon from giving birth to rumored longings in your yard. And the moral of that, <laughs> that one is don't live on the same block as a writer. <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. Okay, I'm going to read uh, a fall poem, and then maybe we'll move on to winter. Um, this is a poem that was inspired by a misspelling on a student's paper. Um, the student was writing about depression and used the word melancholy but spelled it two words like it was some kind of dog, melancholy. <laughs> so... I don't even want to correct those things anymore. I love them so much. They're so inspiring. Melancholy. Let us take him out for a walk, this melancholy. For today our feet can kick and be a little violent in the boulevard's deep leaves. He may be wearing the mask of lethargy and be curled fetally on his round bed, but his nose betrays with its moist quiver that he's still a bit game for the world. Let us poke and rouse his bulk then and throw some wraps around our skins and take him perpetually dressed out into the seesaw seasons. And let us not plan the way or try to cajole, but let him loiter all day if he prefers, waiting for this bush or that to burst into flame and speak to him 
in a baritone voice. We'll follow the random circuit of his route, trusting the fur-muffled compass of his heart and the blues that dictate the same seeming swing of his quadruped gait. We'll walk until the sunset smears the sky magenta and blue jays mouth the final berries of the year while melancholy licks the face of whomsoever he encounters, for there are no strangers in this world. Okay. Um, I have to show you this picture, because <laughs> the title of the poem is Lincoln-esque, and it really is a tribute to Lincoln, but my dog inspired it because he was sitting in the chair like Lincoln, and I walked into the room and had this really weird moment where I, it looked just like the memorial. Lincoln-esque. I gaze a tad astonished at Bruno in the blue chair. Pardon if you must the dog drift of my mind. His paw athwart the armrest, his erect head focused inward and beyond. His brown eyes waited, his mouth sealed like a statue's and though he isn't sitting high as the memorial's stone throne, and he has not become a roost for dusky doves who foul him, bringing home the yonder and expansive drift of sky, Lincoln hovers here, the man whose sorrow is the hook of our love, whose inconsolable heart is our blessing, and whose gangly form, that thread beaded with grief, has become the rosary of centuries. Okay, just a couple more. This poem is a tribute to a neighborhood dog who passed recently, and um, it's called Buddy. We almost always find you in your yard alone, no matter whether morning, midday, dusk, free to roam within that circumference, though in summer barred from tomatoes. And I, unable to leave words alone, sing out buddy, budinsky, butteroony, butterbuds, because you're yellow, fat, and sweet. Bruno refuses to acknowledge you, and though I try to engineer greetings by walking closely behind him, steering his nose to yours, you get low to play, but he only sneezes and pees. So you hoist your tawny paws to the fence rail where I can stroke you. You have a house, such as it is, plastic and blanketless, and your people's deck to sprawl on or shelter under. In their way, they love you. You are licensed, watered, fed, but to them a dog isn't God. Do you smile our faces to see? That was stolen from Blake. <laughs> Stalking you, I've stamped and sent the seasons to wherever spent time goes. In summer, you are shaved and therefore shamed. In winter, we all wear coats. I think I'm called to stalk you, buddy, in the way that pilgrims stalk a shrine. The sun, that alchemist, can boil the bloody sky and turn the gravel that we tread on gold. But I'm intent on you, for through you, I am stalking friendship, loneliness, and love. I'm just going to read uh, one more because I want to read two more recent dog poems about a different dog. But um, the la in the last season is the whole terrible ordeal that you go through with a 
friend whose lifespan is so different <coughs> from human. Um, and this poem is called Carrying Bruno. One afternoon, the sun draped with gauze, I'm walking Bruno far from home. He can't go on. I have to carry him. I'd like to say it's autumn, red leaves on grass like shapely flames, and me, therefore, harrowing hell for him. But it's spring. We can't seem to abide in anything but spring, our hearts still so terribly green. I wonder how I'll gather paws and torso, head, to lift him, but memory forgets transition. I am walking home, Bruno in my arms, his head on my shoulder, his ears tickling the underside of my buttercup reflecting chin. To comfort him I sing. I have only my paltry song. But then the gods, who give us accidents and illness in the ones we love, take pity on me, turn my throat to wood and hollow it, pierce holes and ink designs, until my mouth expels a woodwind sound. And singing what is mellow and wordless, I glide, my arms overfull of Bruno's tenderness, his blood and organs, insurrection, his bones. Um, I just want to point out that the, my daughter's sitting back there. And she took the photograph, and she also made the flower garland to decorate him because he was going to see his girlfriend that day. <laughs> and having made the flower garland, she did a photo session. And then it all got ruined because my son told him to jump in the, lake, the pond at, at uh, which park? Goodale Park. And he was ruined. <laughs> but anyway, okay, I just wanted to read a poem for my daughter, my daughter, my sister's um, 160 or 70 pound Great Pyrenees mix, St. Bernard mix, Great Pyrenees St. Bernard. I'm not going to read you the long one. Um, I'm going to read you the second one because, well, I don't know. Can I? Okay. All right. Well, this one had the luck to end up in poetry because they did a humor issue and the guy thought it was funny. <laughs> I think it's kind of sad. <laughs> but I'm not going to argue with poetry. It's called Dewlaps. Those things that... Anyway. I've been fond of Dewlaps since first reading about them in Joyce. You know, when the young Stephen Dedalus' father is imitating a hotel keeper by saying he's very moist and watery about the dewlaps, God bless him, a few pages before he utters another phrasal marvel, the Pope's nose, to name the butt flap on the Christmas turkey. Now I'm growing my own, a mortal observation on the mystery of gravity working on me. Still, I choose to celebrate dewlaps, and for this undertaking I select the extraordinary lobes flanking the mouth of my sister's 160-pound St. Bernard Pyrenees, Pyrenees mix. His dewlaps drape his jaws like heavy quilts. They are twin flags of the Duchy of Dog. They are hanging exterior files on the cabinet of snout. They are dueling pendulums of a white fur metronome. They are awnings on Dog Hotel and are thick like a dowager's brocade. They waft so slowly that they slow the whole world down. We watch them dance their damp ballet, and watching, we forget to watch the troubled world. They fling a thick white sputum like the ectoplasmic hands of a clock. So time is malleable, 
say the dewlaps. When the dog they're attached to reclines with a groan, his dewlaps drape his paws. In fact, they extend beyond his paws to dampen the floor. I think someone could hide from all sorts of obligations under a dewlap. A few years back, I felt an intense hankering to witness these exceptional flaps. I found myself singing, going to see the dewlap dog, and wound my daughter and myself up so much, we braved the January ice, and you can bet I went down on my bum between dew and lapped as I reached the car door. Nevertheless, today, looking at paintings by Munch involving curtains and assignations, I still believe in the possibilities of dewlaps. Ah, Polonius, perhaps a living Arras would have stopped the sword. And I'll end with dewlaps redux that nobody seems to want. <laughs> but anyway, I just wasn't done yet, I don't think. Um, and this is in memory of the dewlap dog. The long and short of it is this. In nine years, Merlin never snarled. His dewlaps wouldn't let him. They neutralized aggression were his character's calcium. Provoked, he'd pause, say, rough, then toss his head, a mantle of serenity falling over his face. Often I remarked his butler-esque demeanor, disapproval professionally hidden in a blizzard of white fur, then pulverized to kibble in his tabled soul. Example. He loved Daisy, the other white dog in the house. On the day they toasted their betrothal with cookie bones, she attacked him for his. But his dewlap steadied him, like quilted counterweights attached to that worst of weapons, the mouth, like deep pouches carrying his gentleness. Thank you. Can I just say, there's one at the bookstore here and there are several, just a couple at SBX and I think they're kind of stuck with them so go buy them. <laughs> okay. Thanks, thanks for coming in from downtown today to share your time and talent. Our next reader is Rick Brown. Um, he's the editor of Naked um, Sunfish Magazine and also a university library yeah, and every time I get behind one, I act like it's the first time. <clears throat> I had a story about my very first dog <clears throat> that I had as a child, but I realized... Every time I read it, even though 50 years have passed, I still grieve for that animal. So rather than break down in front of everybody, <laughs> I decided to write about my current dog, who ironically, um, as a puppy, was called Bruno. Um, but seeing as he's a foofy little white dog, Bruno didn't seem to fit him, so we named him Henri. This is something I wrote a couple years ago called Walk the Dog. I don't know. I guess I felt compelled to do it. I mean, it's 90 friggin' degrees outside, and I take the dog for a walk. 
My wife is on a short business trip, so, as usual, I felt the need. It's not like Henri objects. No, no. At the sound of the word walk, he perks his ears up, tilts his head as if those flappy, furry things are going to suck the preface. Do you want to take a? Right out of my mouth. That's what Monsieur Henri wishes to hear, and I obliged him. The dog actually walks around holding the middle of his leash out for you to take. He's into it, big time. I remember a friend telling me that the best thing about having a small dog was that all you have to do is run him up and down the stairs a few times, <laughs> meaning you didn't have to take him for a walk. And neither of us does that often. He runs around his backyard enough to solve any guilt. So I took him on the usual yet not habitual route. It was around 6 in the evening. So people were out walking their dogs. And a lot of folks in the neighborhood have backyards with doggies frolicking. Bark, bark, bark. This is the yin and yang. Dogs in yards. Bark, bark, bark. Dogs in the street. Sniff, sniff, sniff. If you're lucky, that's how it happens. It's a little orchestral, really. Man's best friend overture. I only met a couple people on walks with their pooches. First, there was a woman with two... She told me they were, um, well, they look to be schnauzers, but maybe terriers. My brain is no better with dog breeds than I am with human names, and that's pretty bad. The woman says, oh, can we visit? I assumed she was speaking about the dogs. <laughs> Immediately, one of her hounds was sniffing Henri's ears, while the other explored his nether regions. Being a male, Henri first looked up at me like, this is interesting and perhaps quite okay. But soon after, I believe the two males, of which Henri was involved, realized the situation and began cautiously snarling at one another. The woman's male dog continued to bark in a very, very focused dog kind of way as the French boy and I soft-shooted out of there. I turned and walked backwards for a few yards watching her try to reason with a pedigree male dog. Be good, boy, be good. I yelled my apologies as I, with beast in tow, sashayed towards home. But the adventure was not over, however. Just around the bend in the road appeared an older couple, and by that, now, in the year 2007, I mean people about eight years older than myself. <clears throat> that had what looked to be a ha Afghan hound. They immediately turned their attention to Henri Richard, seemingly recognizing him, calling him Mazzy, Maggie, Mandy, Mandingo. I don't know, something like that. They thought it was another dog by a name beginning with the letter M and were hard to convince otherwise. In the greenhouse over there lives a dog that could be, what's his name? Henri, I replied. Well, you should ring the bell there because the dogs are identical. By this point, both their Afghan hound, they called it by name, but all I remember is being relieved the canine's moniker wasn't Taliban or something similar. And Henri were pulling their leashes in extreme excitement. I figured we had had enough visiting and bid the three adieu. He's so precious, the woman exclaimed. He sure is, really precious, the old guy yelled over at us. And as I headed in the direction of home with a panting, pulling, crazed Bichon leading the way, I glanced over my shoulder at the older couple, eight years, 
and smiled and said, yeah, he's precious, all right, and it's a damn good thing. <laughs> These are a couple of uh, poems written by Maxie Brannon <clears throat> as translated from Bark by Anita. The first one is a sonnet called To My Ball. I look into the starlit sky and see bright lights there shining high. The lights look round to my keen eye, but there they stay, while earth-bound I. By day around me spheres do seem as round as stars. In sunlit gardens, it appears, orb flowers grow afar. But no round shape that nature takes appears to me as wonderful as my old ball, the delight it wakes. It pierces to my very soul. Appearance may beguile the eye, yet love and joy within do lie. Manure. O wondrous scent, I cannot get close enough to your heavenly delight. Smelling deeply, quickly, plunging my face again and again into your rarefied pleasure, rapturously rolling and rubbing in your essence. You become a part of me. I run joyous to my master, eager to share my sensual joy, only to be put under the garden hose. <laughs> okay, this, my final one is called, and believe me, it is about dogs. What are these Baptists doing on my porch? <clears throat> All of these uh, are on uh, my website, www.nakedsunfish.com. And uh, if you'd like to take a look, that'd be great. So it's out there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I didn't get Henri specifically because he's a babe magnet. My wife is allergic to dogs, and the Bichon Frise is a non allergenic breed. The babe magnet thing is just an appealing benefit to the deal. Translated from the French, Bichon Frise literally means allurer of the femme fatale. Oh, sure, it's a little hard to believe. In fact, I first incorrectly assumed Bichon Frise must mean something like magnet of the freezer, or as it's known in this country, refrigerator magnet. Fortunately, I was way off base on this, and Henri Richard is indeed a babe magnet. Although the breed is initially thought to have originated in Spain, the Bichon flourished in the royal courts of France. The height of its popularity came in the late 16th century when King Henry III carried his beloved dogs everywhere he went in a special basket that hung around his neck. My conclusion? Babe magnet. Perhaps he was trying to attract boys, or maybe he was just being foofy himself, but I'm going with my own mythology. The truth of this became very evident to me on a day trip to the college town of Athens, Ohio, where Ohio University is located. While strolling around the town's small shops holding Henri in my arms, this works much better for you and Doggy if held in the arms. The breed only weighs between 14 and 18 pounds, and I'm assuming carrying him in my arms is way more comfortable than a basket dangling from my noggin. I was approached by what seemed to be hordes of young coeds. Ooh! 
Look at the cute little puppy. He's so adorable. Sure enough, babe magnet. So a couple weeks ago, I'm home alone with the pup when there's a loud knock on the front door. I'm not fond in any way of surprise visits by anyone, especially people convinced that I cannot live my life any longer without whatever it is they have to sell me. I peered through the curtains to see a portly, balding, middle-aged man in an ill-fitting suit and spectacles, accompanied by a woman perhaps in her early 30s. She had blonde hair that certainly had been paid for and just a bit too much eye makeup a la Britney Spears. She was wearing a leather jacket, a skirt not quite short enough to be called mini, but certainly short enough to be labeled intriguing, and heels that would never ever be called professional, at least not in the corporate sense. Had this woman's hair been teased, as they used to say back in the early 60s, I would have sworn I'd gone back in time, back to the era of bad greaser girls. He stood there and asked me why, and all I could do was cry. I'm sorry I hurt you, the leader of the pack. (laughs) Anyway, these two certainly didn't look like they were together. I picked Henri up in my arms to quell his barking and opened the front door. The man in the bad suit immediately greeted me with, We're from the Capital City Baptist Church, and we're visiting your neighborhood to see if people are saved and are attending church. Do you, sir, attend church regularly? Wow, these guys were Baptists. Right there on my front porch. Fond memories of childhood brushed into my brain. Many a time my mother, in order to avoid the Jehovah's Witnesses, would have my sister, two brothers, and I crouch behind the living room sofa with her and pretend no one was home. (laughs) Although as a boy this made me feel a little guilty, it sure as hell was exciting. Then... After the witnesses grew weary of knocking and clutching their free literature and dejection, left our porch, Mom would treat us all to ice cream. I guess it was some sort of anti-proselytizing celebration. More than likely, knowing my mother, it was just yet another excuse to eat ice cream. But I didn't care. So I lied to the guy. After all, he was on my front porch, uninvited. I told him I had been raised Lutheran, true enough, and that my wife and I attended Clinton Heights Lutheran Church. Untrue enough. Raising his eyebrows, which had more hair than the top of his head, he replied, Lutheran, huh? Well, at least you aren't Catholic. He said this as if somehow I should be relieved. I was okay in his book. My glass was half full. Yet I was sure by the end of this conversation he would believe my glass to be half empty, at the very least. Then he went into his Baptist mantra, we believe everyone has to be born again, blah, blah, blah. I really don't have anything against Baptists, quiet Baptists, that is. The problem is, I can't find any quiet Baptists. And after a young Baptist minister turned my father's funeral into a carnival for Christ, I suppose I'm a little defensive. But I was polite and half listened to the man's witnessing, after which I said, yes, I know that's what you believe. He seemed befuddled by my comment. A befuddled man in an ill-fitting suit. I told him I studied theology in college. He became very silent. The scene awkward. And a bit uncomfortable when all of a sudden I heard, Your dog is so cute! He is just adorable! What kind is he? Can I pet him? 
the terribly secular-looking Baptist babe had overcome her shyness. And it dawned on me that she wasn't really what we used to call a church camp where I was a counselor during my college summers, a PT. This is an abbreviation for a word starting with P and rhyming with my name, Rick, followed by what boys do to their little sisters when they're children or what the bad greaser girls used to do to their hair in the early 60s, tease. PTs acted all religious and stuff, but dressed like they were ready to go. And on occasion, they would look at you like they were ready to go with you, if you catch my drift. PTs could be fellow counselors, ministers' wives, or even ministers themselves. Oh, they would never admit any of this lustful behavior. That's where the tease part comes from. But this woman seemed to be merely pushing the boundaries of submissive Baptist women criteria. Apparently, Baptists believe that submissive Baptist women criteria is written right there in the New Testament, although I've yet to come upon it in my research. So whilst this coy, boundary-pushing, attractive woman was fawning all over Henri, what conclusion could I come to? Babe magnet. The three of us spoke nothing but Henri from that point on, and the pair soon left. I realized Henri obviously had no religiosity filter. He probably has no filters whatsoever. He is intensely, sincerely, skillfully a tried-and-true babe magnet. No matter what their politics and or religious views, Henri the, Henry III couldn't be wrong, could he? And I'm curious as to what may or may not transpire if I ever get a visit from the Jehovah's Witnesses. But, just to be on the safe side, I moved the couch away from the wall, leaving enough room for a man and his little dog. Thank you.